All right, are we hot? Yes, we're working. Technology, technology. Someday we'll do a sermon on the perils of technology. And we'll unplug everything, and we'll meet in the Heritage Hall, and we'll just let the sound carry, and we'll pretend that we live in, like, the 1800s. How's that sound? That, that'll be, I feel like that would be a fun worship service, just like a totally stripped and unplugged, where there's no remotes or wires. Which someday we'll do a behind-the-scenes, and you can see how many wires every person on the stage has on their body at any given time. Like, I have one that goes, like, up here, and one that goes down my back. It's a whole weird thing. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing on in the book of Judges, and I'll apologize ahead of time just in case. Uh, our daughter was born Monday morning, for those who didn't see the email. Uh, Aaron Jean is beautifully healthy. Mom is doing great. Um, <laughs> I meant to put a picture in, but I, I didn't, and so maybe we'll toss something in the FYI to give you an update. But uh, So if, if at the end of this you walk away and go, you know, that was the most nonsensical sermon on the book of Judges I've ever heard. Just know that about two-thirds of it was written while I had an infant kind of right, right here with my phone. <laughs> and so you, f- you figure out where the space is and you make it happen. Uh, but here we are. We are two weeks left in the book of Judges, and we are looking at the final two Judges today with some level of haste. Uh, we put them together, number one, for time's sake, because we're going to be getting into the, the length time and the sermon series that comes with that. And so we had a limited amount of weeks to work with to get this sermon in. Uh, but number two, because these, these two narratives really are in some way together. Uh, and they're bound together by the way that they're introduced. And so we'll, we'll look at that in a second. But the, the narrative of Jephthah and the narrative of Samson, um, while they are very much separate stories that don't take place together, um, the enemies that they battle are both introduced at the very beginning here as kind of one, like the Lord gives them over to this and this enemy, and then Jephthah deals with one, and Samson deals with the other. And so we will have to fly through a whole lot of story today. Um, we're essentially dealing with six chapters of scripture in one sermon. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll stop at some points along the way, but I really encourage you, um, not just with this, but with any of our judges' sermons, that you would go home after, and you would spend some time reading through that text. Or you could just wait a couple weeks if you're the Bible in a year plan joiner, and you'll get there on your own, and you can reread that and go, yeah, I remember preaching about that, right? So just just know that. Please be in the midst of the scriptures and kind of read through the depths of the stories and all the little nuances and details that we skip over in our brief time that we get to share. And so we'll get to we'll get to Judges ten today, but first, as always, the cycle of Judges. All right, we know where we are. Israel is doing great, quote unquote. Their great looks worse and worse, right? They descend into sin. They whore themselves after the other gods, pretty much any god but God himself, as we'll see today, right? They literally chase any god they can find. They're like, oh, I heard there's a god in that corner over there. Let me go find him before I will serve the one true god of the universe. And they continue to fall into the depth of it. And so the Lord gives them over to um, their own devices and has an enemy come in and take them over until they cry out for help, and we've learned first they repent, now they're not even repenting. They're just asking God to solve their problems, even though they're not serving him, right? And the Lord shows mercy, he raises up a judge, the judge saves them from the enemy, and they enjoy some level of peace and prosperity until the judge dies, and it starts over again. I know this is mundane, but the reason we've brought this cycle up every single time, even though by now you're like, yeah, we know, Vince, can we skip those two minutes, is because today... Things are a little different. Everything changes with these last two judges 
and goes significantly downhill, and we get a hint of it before we're ever introduced to the first one of them, and it's here in Judges 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And we'll see both of those. Jephthah deals with the last of them, and Samson later will deal with the first of those. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Remember we talked about some of these cycles being like individual tribes that are dealing with them? We're now dealing with enemies who are coming into the heart. They're getting to Judah. Like there's like, they're crossing over the Jordan. They're not just dealing with fringe tribes on the edges. The the Ammonites and Philistines are really invading the heart of of the land of Israel, right? Maybe there's... And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, this is all familiar, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, here's a new one, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Okay, we'll finish this a little bit. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The Lord has had it. In our house, Graham has like a couple different modes of toddler tantrum crazy level. Most of the time, we're at like somewhere between a one and a seven, and I can handle that. Every once in a while, he gets into the eight and nines where like he's either going to go through a wall or I'm going to walk away for a second, right? The Lord is there. He has had it. He has given the same instructions over and over and over again. He has put them in timeout many, many, many times, and they are simply not getting it. And so this time when they cry out for help, he's like, yeah, I'm done. Just like you guys are tired of the judge's cycle, <laughs> the Lord himself is tired as well, right? We can relate, right? And he has this, this time where he says, you know what? Let the, I love this. Let the gods you've gone after take care of it, right? They're obviously so much greater than I am that you keep ditching me and going after literally every god. Like you found a god in a closet once and just worshipped it instead of me. Like anything you can find seems to be better than I am even though I've shown myself over and over again to be full of mercy and love and compassion and have a plan for you, and I gave you this land, I am done. Let those gods save you. They're so star-spangled awesome. And he just lets them go. 
right? And so this is actually one of the saddest, but then also one of the kind of beautiful times in the book of Judges, because at first they tell him, you know, well, I, yeah, you're right, we've sinned, do to us whatever you want, but just, just still save us this one more time. And he doesn't. Right? He lets him go. And here, here's the cool thing. The Israelites repent again. Right? What does it say? They put away the foreign gods, verse 16, from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. It doesn't say that he had compassion or relented. It just says that he was just tired of watching them suffer. He didn't like them anymore. Right? Hate to bring the analogy back, but if you're parents, you understand that. You love your ch child. Sometimes you just don't like your child. Right? He, he wasn't going to go through the same cycle again, but he, we have this sense that, yeah, he is, he is in misery over the fact that they are suffering and struggling. And so he still has a love for his people. He hasn't completely forsaken them, but he's given them a bit of a reprimand. Like, you, you can't just keep doing this to me. If you think we're just going to do this dance where you just do what you want and cry out when you need it, like, there's a finite end. And so if we, from nothing else, from, from chapter 10, if we gain anything... It is very dangerous to test the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. Right? What does Paul say? Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? No. Right? We think, well, we live under grace. The Lord forgives us. Right? We can just like, do our life and then at the end of the day, check off the, the apology and repentance piece and then start it all over again. And God says, no, I am a God of mercy and love and grace and compassion. But there is a finite end to the amount of forgiveness that I extend to you and the amount of grace that I extend to you. There is a point at which like, you, you are accountable for your actions. Right? Sin is still sin, and sin has consequences. Right? The message of the Christian life is that we are forgiven in Christ, that there's nothing his blood can't cover, but the Lord at some point says, enough. Right? And we see that throughout Scripture, and we see it here. And then we move on. So by the time we get into this Jephthah account, um, it starts with no Jephthah in sight. Right? We, don't, we don't see him. The Lord doesn't raise Jephthah up in some crazy magical way or call upon him in some magical way. Jephthah is, is interesting because he's an outsider. Right? So the people are there. The, the Ammonites have come in. They've encamped. Like this, this chapter almost starts like the battle is ready. We're not, we're not putting the battle at the end of the story. We're putting it right at the beginning. Like the camps are there ready to, to call upon war and to, for the battle to start. And the Israelites are freaking out because they have no leader. Because what usually happened? The Lord gave them one. He said he's done with them. And so they're standing there like chickens with their heads cut off going, what on earth are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? We need a leader. And no leader suitable in all the tribes is found. And so the elders think of this guy named Jephthah. And Jephthah has a troubled past. Jephthah is actually the son of Gilead, who, you know, the tribe of Gilead, who the tribe is named after. And so he is, he is a descendant. He has a birthright to, to the tribe to be in charge, to have an inheritance. But the brothers of Jephthah cast him away from them and caused him to flee because they did not want him to share in their inheritance. Right? They didn't want to split their inheritance with Jephthah because Jephthah... Though Gilead was his father, his mother was a prostitute. And so, according to all the brothers, I mean, you're not really a son. Right? 
And so Jephthah grew up being cast out, and he goes and flees to the land of Tob, we're told, and lives kind of in, in the hill country. He, he's, he's kind of off the beaten path. He's fleeing. He's hiding. He's a refugee in some ways. And as he grows up, he becomes a pretty mighty warrior. And, and by the time we get to this story, he has surrounded himself by a bunch of worthless thugs and essentially is like a warrior mercenary for hire, right? So he has a reputation for getting it done in battle, but he's not grown up with, with God in his life. He, he doesn't really know the customs or any of those things. He's just kind of lived on his own. He's really rough and gruff. And he's one of those guys like that you call when you want to get it done. Like you need someone gone, but you don't want to know how it happened, right? You call Jephthah, and you don't ask questions. You just give him the bag of money, and your problem disappears. And it's buried or drowned somewhere, and you just turn your head and stick your hands in it, right? So they finally, in desperation, they go to Jephthah, and they ask him for help. Now picture this. The very guys who cast him out and cut him off from the inheritance, and the elders did nothing about it. They're now coming to him saying, we need you. And they ask him for help, and he demands a whole lot in return. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Right? He tells them, like, what? Really? What do you want from me? Like, Go deal with your own problems. And they convinced him to come. And the elders of Gilead said to him, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So they essentially tell him, Listen, if you do this for us, you get to be in charge of us. Like, we'll make you ruler over our tribe. It's a pretty good apology, right? If they kicked him out, but the, but the apology is, if you come help us through this, we'll put you in charge. And he's like, you know, the vow piece that you see, the repetitiveness of it all, is essentially him saying, like, I want that in writing. <laughs> like, I want you, you can't just say that to me over here in the, in the, in the land of Tob. When I come back, like, I, I got to see this proclaimed publicly so that everybody knows. Because I'm not just going to, like, solve your problem for you to just go back on your word and kick me out again. Your word doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Right? And so they proclaim it, and he comes back, and they make a vow, and he's, he's at the point now where he is made head. And it's actually such a desperate time in the life of Israel that they put him in charge before he ever wins the battle. Like, they give him his share first, <laughs> just because they need him so badly. And so we now have Jephthah agreeing to lead the people, and now he has to figure out a way to keep his promise. And so Jephthah is a very skilled diplomatic kind of guy. He has, he has the muscles for sure, but he also has the brains. And he starts diplomatic conversations with the king of the Ammonites, not to try to solve it without war, but to buy himself enough time to raise an army up. Right? He just stalls. Like he's, he's sending messengers, but while he's doing that, he's going around and he's getting his army together and ready for battle. He knows there's not going to be a diplomatic solution to this. The Ammonites aren't going to say, yeah, you know, you make some valid points. You were in the land first, I guess, so we, no, there's going to be a battle, right? But let's, let's get ourselves ready. And so then we get to the point where the battle is about to occur, and we have this passage in verse 29 where the spirit of the Lord, it says, was upon Jephthah. 
Up until this point, God has been absent. But we, we hear the Lord come in, and he, he has the mercy that even he said he wouldn't have. And he, his hand is on Jephthah, and the Spirit rests upon him. And it's essentially the Lord assuring victory before the battle starts, just like he always has. And everything seems to be good. Jephthah has some redemption. Right? He's not on his own, isolated anymore. He's in charge now. He's about to, to defeat the Ammonites. Things look to, to wrap up like a normal cycle again. Even the Lord has come in and had the spirit rest upon Jephthah and given him assurance. Everything is going according to plan. And then Jephthah goes off the deep end out of the blue completely. And that's where we pick up in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, even though he doesn't need to do this, but he did it. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He's essentially saying, listen, I know that your spirit is on me and you've just assured me victory, but I need to make this vow to you. Right? What do we know about vows in scripture? God takes them seriously. He says, don't make a vow. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because if you make one, you're bound by it. He says, listen, if you let me win this, when I get home, whatever the first thing that, that walks through my door, anything that comes out of my door to meet me, right, wife, children, livestock, whatever, anything that comes out, I'm going to offer to you as a burnt offering. Anybody here want to make that? Like, hey, if you give me a new job today, when I get home, whoever the first person that greets me, I'll burn them in your honor. <laughs> Terrible vow. Why? Why would Jephthah do this? And the only answer we have is that this is not the custom of the Lord, but this is the custom of the gods in a lot of places that surround them. And so Jephthah is doing what someone who worships these other gods would do, because that's how the other gods work. That's not how our God works. The Lord demanded a sacrifice of Abraham, but did he actually ever demand that Isaac be killed and go through with it? The Lord does not ask us to sacrifice our children or whoever it is, our wives or our pets or whoever comes out the door in order for us to get what we want. That's not how Christianity works. And if anyone's ever told you that, we like, please meet me this week and we can have a conversation in my office. You need counseling, like hardcore counseling, right? And so Jephthah does this promise and tragically we see what happens. He has made this vow and he is now acting just like the Canaanites who worship their gods. And so... Surprise, he gets victory. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, which he already was going to do anyway, and he struck them from Aor, or Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Keraimim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. A couple things. Number one, daughter and only child. I now have one of those. I'm not burning her as an offering. I don't care how much I like you. <laughs> Like, if the Ammonites are coming against you, you're just, sorry, you're just screwed. I'm home with my daughter. 
right? No burning is happening. But he comes home, and of course, the most precious thing to him walks out the door. It wouldn't be something easy like a donkey or something coming out. It had to be his daughter. Second thing I want you to notice is the selfishness with which he responds. He doesn't, he doesn't tear his clothes and say, oh, no, and mourn for his daughter. You have brought me low. You have been a cause of great trouble for me. Like, he's blaming the daughter for this whole thing. And if we continue on, eventually what we see is she actually obeys, right? She asks for some time to mourn, and then afterwards he actually offers her as a burnt offering to the Lord and kills his daughter. And so we now have a leader of the people who is willing to sacrifice his own children for the victory, even though God never asked him to. Like, they're doing things that are crazy without any need because they are so wrapped up in the way that the other people and their gods function that they have just completely lost track of what it means to live as Israel, as God's people, under him and his law and his rule, which is good and pleasing and perfect. They're just completely different. They don't even recognize one another anymore. And so this, this whole thing ends with her dead and just tragedy. And then it gets worse. After the battle is over and the dust settles, uh, the tribe of Ephraim comes, and we've heard them come to another judge and complain before. They come and they say, hey, when this whole battle was happening, you never called on us to come be part of it. And we're mad at you, and so we're going to burn down your house. I don't know about you, the tribe of Ephraim, do you have those friends who are like nowhere to be found when you need them? And then like the next week, they're like, oh, I wish you would have called me. Like you should have, right? Like, or they show up exactly when the job is done. Like, oh, I would have helped. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I think the tribe of Ephraim is like that person wrapped in one giant tribe. Because it always seems like you never hear from them until the battle is done. And then they come and they're like, we are so angry you didn't call us to help. Well, you knew we were in trouble. You could have just sent soldiers. You never called us to help. We're going to burn your house down. <laughs> and so the last time we had a negotiation that take place, the judge tried to appease them and kind of calm them down to keep the peace. Jephthah's not that kind of guy. Jephthah says, listen, we're going to wage war. You're not burning my house down. I'm going to take you out. And he starts to wage war. And so now we have the tribe of Gilead and the tribe of Ephraim fighting one another. And he just blows them up. He crushes them. And not only does he crush them, but when the battle is done and they've been defeated, there's, there's an area where they're trying to pass from one land to the next. They're essentially trying to like escape and be refugees. He creates this kind of password that, you know, it's, if you've ever heard of the shibboleth, sibboleth, type of thing. They, 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 he creates this word that they can't cross without saying it, and he actually doesn't allow even the people trying to escape to escape. Anybody who's caught at the border who has the heritage of an Ephraim is killed eventually, and the number we are told is about 42,000. Jephthah's got an axe to grind. I don't know why he got so mad. Maybe it was the comment about burning his household after he had just burned his own household, in a way. Right? Maybe something there struck a nerve and he just lost it and snapped. But what we have in Jephthah is someone who is not controlled, who has significant amounts of, of damage and issues to work through, who has a temper, who has anger problems, who doesn't react the way that a good, fair, righteous judge would. And there is not an ounce of him that suggests that he has done anything for the Lord's sake. 
the people of God are just kind of coasting and doing whatever seems right in anyone's eyes. And that's the phrase that we keep coming back to throughout the book of Judges. It shows up over and over again in the cycles. In the days of the Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no leader to be counted worthy. Even those who win battles aren't winning them in the ways the Lord would have them win them. Right? And so Jephthah, I, think I would argue, leaves the people of Israel in, in some ways worse than he found them. Right? Sure, the Ammonites are defeated, but they're still dealing with enemies, and now they're further descended away from God's presence. And I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you take a God who says, I'm done with you, and somehow at the end of the day, you make it worse. But he does. Then we get to Samson. And Samson's story is insane and crazy. And if there is a set of chapters that I would encourage you to read start to finish, it is Samson. We have to kind of speed through him for the sake of time this morning. Samson's birth narrative in some ways, how he comes to be a judge, is very different. Samson is actually created from, by God for the sake of becoming a judge that is raised up to deliver the people. Right? And so when we get to chapter 15, we actually have the birth narrative of Samson. And Samson is born, you know, his parents have an angel come to them. It's very Christology-like. Like, it has, harkens back to the time where the angel of the Lord visits Mary, right? And then visit, it deals with Joseph and all these kinds of things. So the angel of the Lord comes to, to Samson's mom and then later to, to dad, who are barren, and he says, you're going to have a child, right? And they are set apart for the Lord, and they are going to be incredibly strong. They are going to be somebody who I raise up. They're going to have superhuman strength, but there's three things they're not allowed to do. They are not allowed to cut their hair ever in service to me. They are not allowed to drink strong drinks, so no booze for Samson. And they are not allowed to touch a dead body because they're supposed to be kept pure and clean and holy and set apart, right? His body is a temple. I wonder if we get the phrase, your body is a temple from, from Samson in some ways because his body was literally created to be this, this temple, this, this attest to the Lord's work in some ways. And so Samson is born from the very beginning and raised as the deliverer to be of Israel. And he grows up and he's superhuman strength. He's able to conquer anything he wants. And we get to his adulthood. But the problem with Samson is that he's a pig. Samson is a chauvinist. Samson is a womanizer. Samson has the worst temper of all. Right? And if you read through the narrative of Samson, there's all these little times where like, someone rubs him the wrong way. And he ends up like unleashing the, the hell fury of a thousand sons on them. Right? It's like someone looks at you wrong. And so you punch him in the face. You're like, that's an overreaction, Samson. <laughs> but he does it all the time. And so we see that Samson, from the very get-go, is not a fit leader, even though the Lord has raised him up to be one. In his first real bout with the Philistines, he kills a thousand of them with his bare hands in chapter 15. Right? They try to bind him, and he breaks free, and he picks up the bone of a donkey, and he uses a bone of a donkey to single-handedly, like not with an army, just him, slaughter a thousand Philistines. You think the guy has an anger problem, right? His ultimate downfall, oh, one more fun one, he ties torches to the tails of foxes and sends them running through the Philistine fields so that the fields would burn down. Like, that's his way of handling stuff. <laughs> not a good guy. But Samson's ultimate downfall, as with many men, and this is not, I'm not trying to stereotype, but like, women. Samson's downfall is women. He is weak for the ladies. 
loves the ladies. And he loves the Philistine ladies. And so ultimately what gets Samson is that there is a woman that he wants to have named Delilah. And the Philistines devise a brilliant plan. They use the one thing that they can use, right? Sex sells. And so they go to Delilah and they convince her, we need you to woo him, to flirt with him, to do whatever you need, and to ask him and figure out how his strength can be mitigated. Why is it that he's so strong? The Lord has given this to him. There's got to be a weakness. He's got to have an Achilles heel. You're going to spend time with him. You're going to romance him. You're going to do whatever you need to do, and you're going to figure out how we can get at him and what his weakness is. And she does it. She over and over asks him again, what is your weakness? And he tells her like weird like wives' tales. Well, if you bind me up with, with so, such and such a rope so many times, then I will lose all my strength. And so she, she does it. And he breaks free. And then she asks him again, and he goes over and over again, if you put my hair in a loom, then I'll lose my strength. And she does it, and he's still strong. And you would think that after a while, like, if my wife is like, hey, like, what, like, are you, like, deathly allergic to anything? And I was like, yeah, peanuts. Even though I wasn't allergic to peanuts, and, like, the next day I'm getting a peanut butter sandwich for lunch. Like, after two or three times, I'd be like, this woman's trying to kill me. But Samson is so love drunk that he just doesn't even seem to notice. This is one of those scriptures that baffles me when I read it. Like, what, what on earth? Right? Eventually, he tells her the secret. If you cut my hair, I will lose my strength. And so when he's sleeping, she cuts his hair, and the Philistines capture him, and he, his strength has left him, and he's subdued by them, and he loses out. Right? At the end of it, when we get to chapter 16, the Philistines are gathering to, to offer sacrifices to their god, and when they're drunk enough, they bring Samson out to parade him in front of everybody and mock him. And it tells us that, like, all the high people of society were there, right? And the people on the balcony of that house numbered 3,000 people. And so you have essentially the leadership of the Philistines and, like, 3,000 people all gathered in this place. And there's these two pillars that hold up the whole structure. And so they chain Samson to the pillars. And he's got nothing. He's just there in the room like an art display of embarrassment for himself, and the Philistines mock him. He looks at the Lord and he says, Lord, if you will give me just superhuman strength for one more time, right? and the Lord relents and does it. Samson uses his strength to take the chains, and he pulls the pillars out, the massive pillars. We're talking like twice as tall as this, as this sanctuary. And he just yanks them to pieces, and the structure falls, and it kills Samson, but also all of the Philistines that are inside of it. And so in a way, he kind of wins a victory. Right? He doesn't crush the Philistines. That's the important thing to know. He doesn't end their reign, because if you notice, when we get to, to the time of the kings and David and Goliath, right? Goliath is a Philistine. Right? David is still fighting them way back then. They're not gone. They're not resolved. This is the one judge's cycle that doesn't actually end in complete victory. But he does have some small semblance of something, but he kills himself in the process. And that's the end of the time of Samson. We'll skip that. And so he ends his life by killing a whole bunch, right? But doesn't achieve victory. We have, the ju we have one judge who defeated the enemy that brought Israel further from God. And we have another judge who got himself killed going through a series of murderous temper tantrums. And that's where we are left. And that's the last judge in the time of Israel. And so you have to picture Israel where they are now. Again, with no leader. Right? There's plenty of people and, and tribes left to mess with them. 
But we don't need those people and tribes outside to mess with them anymore. Because as we'll look at next week in our final week of Judges, what we see next is there's really no issues with enemies. The contention comes from within. Right? With no leader and no sense of what it means to be God's people, we don't need enemies. They will tear themselves completely apart and annihilate themselves in civil war in the last few chapters of the book of Judges. And I promised you, I promised you that at the end of this, there was a glimmer of hope, and I wasn't lying. It will come. But for that, we'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Lord, this is one of those passages where we want to say thank you for your word, but we kind of we stumble a little bit. We, we read of what it is that you've done in the life of the judges and the cycles of Jephthah and Samson, but we have to ask ourselves, what are you up to? What is it that we take away? What is it that we praise you for in the midst of it? And so, Lord, all we can do is to praise your character and to know and trust that you are good. As the people later on in Scripture did while they were in exile, the only hope we have is that you are up to something, that when we can't see it, there is a work being done. And so we praise you for the fact that that is the kind of God that you are. That when we see no hope, there is hope. And we pray that someday we get to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Lord, we thank you that because of your grace and your mercy, in the midst of our darkness and our cycles of, of pain and suffering, that there is a time when we will stand on the other side of heaven and see your plan and glorious unfolding for what it is. But in the meantime, we ask that you give us your hope and your peace. That when we can't see you working, that you allow us to continue to trust you. That we might not be like the people of this time who just go after every other God or every other comfort or every other thing, but that we might stay steadfast. That your spirit would grab a hold of us and empower us to continue to follow you even when there's no logical reason on this earth to do so. Because of who you are, because of your character and your nature. Be with us this week in whatever darknesses we face and remind us of your truth, that you love us, that you care about us, and that you are working for the good of all those who love you. We praise you, and we love you. And all his people said together, amen. amen.